You're listening to the So What Podcast. The eternal Son of God becoming the God-man, that's a miracle wrought by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is undergirding Jesus throughout his entire ministry. According to Hebrews chapter 9, Jesus was able to offer himself up through the eternal Spirit. And then three days later, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is raised. So from the beginning to the end, the Holy Spirit is thoroughly engaged with Jesus. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues that ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Dave Kakish, Matt O'Reilly, and Brad Mills. On this episode, we are honored to be rejoined by Dr. Greg Allison. Dr. Allison received his PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and is currently professor of Christian theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he's held that position since 2003. He's the author of Historical Theology, An Introduction to Christian Doctrine, and is currently the book review editor for Theological, Historical, and Philosophical Studies for the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. Today, Dr. Allison joins the crew to discuss the line in the Apostles' Creed, We Believe in the Holy Spirit. Before we head over to our discussion, we'd just like to thank you for listening to the So What podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at SoWhat underscore podcast. Dr. Allison, thank you for joining So What Podcast again. What a pleasure to have you back. I'm very glad to be back. I enjoyed my first time and uh, look forward to the second time with you. Well, today, um, not only do we have you back on the show, which is a great treat, but we also have one of our contributors, Brad Mills, who usually calls in here uh, in the studio with us. Brad, it's awesome to have you here physically with us. Yeah, it's great to be with you guys. More than in spirit in flesh as well. Yeah, in flesh as well. And maybe a little allusion to our discussion today. The line in the Apostles' Creed that we're discussing is, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Very broad topic. There's a lot of things we could talk about, which is why we wanted to bring you on, Dr. Allison, to navigate us through these waters. So I suppose the first thing that we wanted to talk about is because this is a creedal statement, and it was very important to the early church that the Holy Spirit be recognized in, these, uh, in, this, in this formation of belief, uh, what is the minimum belief that somebody should hold about the Holy Spirit in order to be counted or considered a believer in Christ? The minimum that one should believe about the Holy Spirit is that he is the third person of the triune God, fully God, equal to the Father and the Son in terms of his divine nature, yet still a distinct person. And with the Father and the Son, he is to be worshipped 
and glorified. I think that would be the minimum that a Christian would need to believe. Dr. Allison, I noticed you said that the Holy Spirit was a he and not an it. Yes. Could you clarify that? He is a divine person, not a force field, <laughs> not an energy field, uh, not power. He is powerful, but he is not equated with his power. He is a divine person. Hmm. So he possesses all the attributes of a of a personal being, uh, intellect uh, or mind, um, emotions or feelings, a will, decision making. Uh, so he is a person, not an it. He's not a ghost. He's not Casper. He's not a force field. He's not an energy field. He is a divine person, and therefore is to be treated as such. That's good. I, I think that's a very common misunderstanding that we see in a lot of people trying to articulate who the Holy Spirit is. And so thank you for bringing that up right away. He over it. It's not the thing that keeps Luke Skywalker in the running for the next greatest Jedi, not this impersonal force that you can tap into through nature. Uh, that brings up a question, though. You said that the Holy Spirit, he has a will. How do the wills of the Son and the Father relate to the will of the Holy Spirit? So we believe that there's one will, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, willing together, and yet there are certain responsibilities uh, for which the Holy Spirit is, um, is, is uh, active, uh, is engaged. One example of this would be it is according to the sovereign will of the Holy Spirit that Christians have the spiritual gift or spiritual gifts that they possess. So, so there's something unique about the willing, the sovereign decision of the Spirit to grant specific gifts uh, to Christians. But that's always in conjunction with the Father and the Son. So it, it's not like the Spirit is willing one thing over and against the Father and the Son. They're, they're obviously willing together, but there's something about the will of the Spirit that comes into focus when it comes to our spiritual gifts being given to us. Yeah, that's really good, Dr. Allison. So if we were to, uh, you know, we, we want to avoid it since it's here in the Apostles' Creed, and as you've emphasized the unity of the persons within the Godhead, uh, we definitely want to affirm that. But throughout the history of the Church, there have obviously been people who've denied the, the deity of the Holy Spirit. So what's lost at that? I mean, is it is it truly a necessary element of being a Christian, or could one have a deficient view of the Holy Spirit such that they could be a believer while denying his personhood and or deity? Well, let's look at uh, a denial of the deity of the Holy Spirit. Um, we, we uh, I think, are right in affirming that the Holy Spirit has a particular responsibility in speaking or communicating a divine revelation. So the, the picture of Scripture that we have, for example, of 2 Peter 1, 19-21, there's a particular role of the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophets, and by extension, speaking through the apostles. And so if the Holy Spirit is the speaking God, the one primarily responsible for taking the divine revelation from the Father through the Son and communicating to us that revelation, if he's not God... Uh, I think we would be very, or should be very suspect about the kind of revelation that he's communicated to us, uh, if he is not uh, fully God. Also, 
uh, if Jesus described the Holy Spirit as another comforter, the one whom Jesus would send in Jesus' place, if Jesus is fully divine and he's sending another comforter, a comforter like himself, we would expect that that other comforter would be divine. If not, I think we have a problem with the presence of Christ in the church in the world today if we have a creature or something other than a divine Holy Spirit. Uh, here's a question following up on that. Um, think, talk to us a little bit about the pastoral implications. Of, you know, does to what extent, uh, you know, whether and to what extent does accurate belief about the Holy Spirit uh, relate to the work of the Spirit? You know, I mean, does having the wrong belief about the Spirit cut off the work of the Spirit in a person's life? Talk about how pastors maybe work through some of those issues with a, a church member uh, who is sort of struggling with how to think about the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, when, for the individual believer struggling to, to figure out how the Holy Spirit works and, and, and functions in their lives, how does a pastor guide that person if they're not quite orthodox? I think helping that individual to understand that, um, that person's salvation is due to the the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, the person that person's understanding of Scripture is due to the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, that that person's uh, ability to cry out, "Abba, Father," and recognize God as Father through Christ, that's that comes through the Holy Spirit. That individuals initial ability, even the initial ability to acknowledge and confess that Jesus is Lord, that comes by the Holy Spirit. That individual's assurance of salvation comes through uh, the Holy Spirit. So I would focus on the mighty works of the Holy Spirit, the ones that are particularly ascribed to him in Scripture, and help that individual understand he or she uh, already knows the Holy Spirit, assuming that this person is a Christian, and and therefore just working out from that uh, salvation and assurance and illumination of Scripture that's already been experienced, working to help that individual understand the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, who, it, who is this Holy Spirit who has saved, who illumines, who gives assurance, and so forth. So you might say that sort of their experience of Christian, helping them connect the dots between their experience of Christian growth and the work of the Holy Spirit, um, and maybe that connection will help them see the Spirit in a more personal, sort of active presence. I, that would be one direction, and I think in the case of many people would be a, a, a very helpful direction. Dr. Allison, I uh, read a book not too long ago, and in the book, uh, the author uh well-known theologian and one I respect and admire very much, uh, basically suggested that Jesus prayed to the Father, therefore, not only the normative standard of prayer, but the standard of prayer for all Christians in all places and all times should be to pray to the Father in the Son by the Spirit. Uh, and my question to you is, is it right to pray to the Spirit according to his roles? If it's the Spirit who convicts the world of sin and I'm praying for my neighbor— uh, who's a non-believer that that the Lord would open up his eyes and that he would become sensible to his sinful reality and his standing before God the Father? Uh, what what do, you, what do you think about that? I agree with you. Uh, yes, the biblical pattern is 
the, the prayers of us Christians are directed to the Father in the name of the Son, so according to the authority of the Son, because of the saving work of the Son, um, in the Spirit or, or in step with the Spirit, that is the biblical pattern. But uh, theologically, if we think about the roles of the Holy Spirit, I think it is correct to pray to the Holy Spirit in relationship to the particular roles that he plays in our life, in the life of the church, in the life of the world, and so forth. And I think you gave a, a very, very good illustration. Uh, uh, Jesus in uh, John chapter 16, 8 through 11, talks about uh, the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And this notion of conviction is underscoring where the world, people who are hostile toward God, are, are guilty, are wrong, are sinful. And, and that's a particular work of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, Jesus uh, sends the Holy Spirit to carry on the work that he, Jesus, did while he was in this world, convicting this world. So, so it would be proper, like you said, to pray uh, in regard to that non-believing friend that the Spirit would engage in his convicting ministry. Um, so I, 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 and just like we would pray thanking the Son for his incarnation and work of salvation by crucifixion, we give him thanks. We don't do that to the Father. We don't do that with the Holy Spirit. So it's right to give particular attention in our prayers to the particular roles of the Holy Spirit, giving thanks, asking the Spirit to grant assurance or grant comfort, whatever it might be. So we're kind of tiptoeing into the the other thing we wanted to talk about today, that being the roles of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about how, just briefly, He is our comforter uh, and how He brings conviction of sin to us. What what other roles does the Holy Spirit play, uh, maybe cosmically and personally, in the life of the believer? So could we say that the Holy Spirit is engaged in the work of creation and new creation. Uh, the church has historically uh, viewed the Holy Spirit as the perfecter of the works of the triune God. So we, we think of creation, the Father speaking the universe and all that exists in it. The Father speaks the creation into existence through his word, the Son, and we find in Genesis 1-2 the Spirit hovering, preparing, readying the formless, uh, uh, the formless uh, matter for creation, uh, preparing it for the future work of, of creation, and, and indeed leading to perfection of it. Uh, I think we see at the, at the end of uh, Scripture, the end of the story, the new heavens and the new earth will be the result of the perfecting work of the Holy Spirit, and, and in between the creation and, and the ultimate new creation, the, the Holy Spirit is responsible for the new creation of the people of God. So we've already talked about conviction of sin before we even hear the gospel and repent of our sins and trust Christ. The Spirit is already stirring up right this sense of guilt and shame uh, because of our failure, because of our weaknesses, because of our sinfulness. The Spirit is, is showing where we're wrong in relationship to Christ and things like that. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings about the new birth. 
So he is the one responsible for the removal of that old identity and, and the impartation of a new nature, a new identity. The spirit also is engaged in our justification, in our adoption. Uh, he will be involved in our resurrection of our bodies. So these are just, I think, a few examples of the work of the Spirit in creation, the very beginning, the ultimate creation, the new heavens and the new earth, and then the work of new creation of the people of God in between those two mighty events. That's really good. Um, you know, as we're recording this today, we're looking forward to this Sunday's uh, Easter. And I wonder, as you've, you've just mentioned the resurrection that believers look forward to in the future, but could you speak a little bit about how the work of the Spirit um, in Jesus's life really uh, maybe helps us think through the, the way he works in our own life as believers. Uh, that, each step of the way uh, in the incarnation, the Holy Spirit was engaged. Yeah. Um, obviously, the, the, the incarnation itself, the, the, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God becoming the God-man, taking on the fullness of human nature, that's a miracle wrought by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uh, descends on Jesus, launching Jesus into his messianic ministry as Jesus is being baptized. And then the Spirit drives, compels Jesus to go into the wilderness to face the initial temptations at the hand of the evil one. The Spirit is undergirding Jesus throughout his entire ministry. In Luke chapter 4, right, Jesus talks about being led by the Spirit. He goes into the synagogue he opens up the uh, scroll of Isaiah the prophet and, and talks about right, the, the, the Spirit coming upon him, the Spirit uh, being the one who anoints him as Messiah. And Jesus says, this scripture is, is beginning to be fulfilled as you hear it read. So the Spirit is engaged with Jesus throughout his ministry. Even as we come to Good Friday, we should remember that according to Hebrews chapter 9, Jesus was able to offer himself up as the perfect sacrificial victim through the eternal spirit. I think a reference to the Holy Spirit. So as the spirit engaged with Jesus and enabled Jesus to do all that Jesus did during his earthly life, even, of, even at the point of death, the spirit is enabling the son to offer that perfect sacrifice. And then three days later, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is raised. So from the beginning to the end, um, the Holy Spirit is uh, thoroughly engaged with Jesus. And so then we could say, by extension, we ought not think of our Christian lives um, separated from his work in us either. If, if Jesus was empowered by him and from beginning to end, I mean, we ought to recognize that in our own lives, it's the same way. Each step of the way, day by day, we're walking with the Spirit, as Paul talks about. Is that right? Uh, that's absolutely right. And I can say... Um, that, that particularly in the last uh, year, and perhaps even more, I've become more and more convinced that apart from the Holy Spirit and, and we as Christians being filled with the Spirit on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, relying on the Spirit, walking the Spirit, being guided by the Spirit, apart from that, no matter how hard we strive after sanctification, um, and, and do all that we can to, to propel ourselves to maturity in Christ, our efforts will ultimately and, and absolutely fail. That it, that it is the Holy Spirit called the sanctifier in the New Testament, right? Uh, it is he who ultimately is the one 
who is going to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. We can't be maturing as Christians apart from the moment-by-moment work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I really want to underscore that. Uh, in his memoirs, Eugene Peterson uh, talks about his early years as a, as a minister, and he said he preached through the book of Luke and then Acts. And uh, he said he came to the realization that they share a parallel beginning, that in the beginning of Luke, Mary conceives by the power of the Holy Spirit and gives birth to the Son of God. And the book of Acts begins with... Uh, the conception of the church, the bride of Christ, that she's born of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And I've always appreciated that. And now, tying that into what you were just saying, Dr. Allison, that our sanctification is completed by the Spirit, and that's how Paul ends his uh, letter to the Thessalonians, uh, that God is faithful to bring them to completion because he began it and he he started with the Spirit and he's going to bring it. And there's all this debate about Romans 7, this person who's struggling with sin, the things I want to do, I don't do, the things I hate to do, I find myself doing. The conversation to me is moot in the sense that regardless of whether it's a believer uh, struggling with present sin or uh, Matt's giving me looks. It's not. Regardless, it's it's done absent from the Spirit. The Spirit's not introduced till Romans 8, that any obedience, even exactly. a believer's attempted obedience apart from the Spirit, will always come up lacking, uh, will always find themselves in this redundant cycle of, of failure because they're trying to do it on their own strength. And so to me, Romans 7 applies to anyone who's attempting obedience apart from the work of the Spirit. I totally agree. <laughs> Matt does not. Well. <laughs> In in the sense that, no, of course. I mean, I would agree with that. Yeah, it can be true on, of a believer. It's well, so, yeah. The debate on the referent of Romans seven is interesting, right? But uh, but what Paul does underscore, right, right there in the very beginning, verse four of Romans eight, right, uh, the the the, uh, the way that we live the Christian life, um, the the way that we. Uh, are are able to fulfill all the requirements of the law of God yeah. uh, is uh, is not by living out of the flesh, out of our sinful nature, trying to even do it on our own, but it's walking uh, according to the Spirit. And, and so all of Romans 8 is emphasizing it has to be by the Spirit. And, of course, Paul picks that up also in, in Galatians. Yep. Uh, you know, we, if we begun by faith in the Spirit of bringing us alive, are we going to be perfected by our works, by our attempts? No, we're, we're not. So it is all by the Holy Spirit from beginning to end that we're going to mature. Resisting the urge to debate Romans 7 with Dave, I'll uh, ask, to what extent can we expect the Holy Spirit to produce holiness in our Like, what's realistic in terms of... Um, our growth, Christian growth and maturity. You know, what what does the pastor say to people who are dealing with the same sins over and over and over again and seem to be kind of stuck in a rut there? Um, and they want to be free. You know, maybe they feel like they're experiencing Romans 7. Um, I'll give you that, Dave. And um, and I wasn't but, making a definitive no, stuff. I'm just, I'm just a, saying it, it, it is, can. can be true of anyone <laughs> attempting obedience apart um, from the work of the Spirit. But you That's see it. the question, how do, we, how do we, you know, minister with people pastorally and what can we expect the Holy Spirit to actually do in terms of growing in holiness in this life? Uh, we can't expect Christian perfectionism, a la John Wesley. I, I don't think that level of holiness is granted to us in this life. Do you, you mind defining that for our listeners? The loving of God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength 
so that every attitude, every thought, every word, every action flows from the love of God and there's nothing contrary to love. It's, it's uh, the ability to avoid all known sin violations of, of known moral laws of God. It's, there's various problems with that position, one of which is its limited notion of sin. Another, I think, is appealing to biblical passages that use the term perfect and understand you, you can reach a certain level of perfectionism. I think Paul calls us, and the scripture calls us to maturity, but we're not going to arrive at perfection. So, so that's, that's not attainable. Uh, so for the person who is um, you know, really struggling with sin, that, that, um, that sensitivity to that constant failure, I think, is a good indication of the Spirit's work. Could we say it? It's it's a two steps forward, uh, three steps back, or three steps forward, two steps back. As long as there's repentance and sensitivity to sin, and and strong desire to fight against it, when we become, when we acquiesce, when we give up, when we become discouraged and just say, "I just can't make any progress," that's I think when we're in danger. Now, Dr. Allison, we've been talking for a few minutes now on the roles of the Holy Spirit, and I think the thing that's coming to the surface mainly for me is how vital the Holy Spirit is to our own sanctification and our walk with Christ, that it is impossible to do it without Him. Uh, Years ago, my wife and I lived in Cambridge, and we were looking for a new church, and I was asking people around what church, you know, what are the churches in the area, and one guy, uh, I, I suggested one church, and he said, he laughed, and he said, no, 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 they're charismatic, you don't want to go there. Uh, well, we did. We ended up going there for three years, and what he meant by charismatic was they believed the Bible was the inspired Word of God, uh, carried a different kind of meaning for us. Uh, but later in that conversation, he said, you know, if you want to go to a church that doesn't do that whole Holy Spirit thing, you can come to this this church that I attend. So, could you tell us about misconceptions of the Holy Spirit? Obviously, that gentleman believed that the Holy Spirit, I don't know what he believed about the Holy Spirit's role. It was very limited, if anything at all, at that point. But what are some misconceptions? Can we fall off on maybe one or two sides of that horse? Because there are uh, some folks that may be familiar with the very extreme Pentecostal tradition where modalism prevails and the Holy Spirit is the only focus of our worship. There's a lot in that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, just going to to the the scenario that you presented, obviously, that man had a lot of misunderstandings about Pentecostal uh, Pentecostals and and charismatic mm-hmm. that they only emphasize the Holy Spirit and neglect the Bible. Uh, sure, you could fo- probably find some variations of, of Pentecostals and Charismatics who are extreme like that, but uh, I think to a large degree, responsible Pentecostals, responsible Charismatics are very focused on the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And then also a misconception that he would have is that his church uh, would be one maybe centered on the Bible and that's what we really need, not the Holy Spirit. So we'll we'll give the Holy Spirit to the Pentecostals and Charismatics. We'll we'll keep the the, the Word of God for us in our church. But I love what Luther says. You know, we we can't understand one bit of 
Scripture, apart from the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is always directing us to Scripture and always working through the commands and the prohibitions and the promises and directions of Scripture so that we need both the Word of God and the Spirit of God. So a major misconception is we can get away with one extreme, say the Word of God, or the other extreme, say the Spirit of God, and we don't need both. That would be a major misconception. And then you mention another one. There are some extreme Pentecostals who are modalists. That is, they believe that God, uh, there's, there's, God is unipersonal. Uh, God manifests himself in different times according to different modes. So very simply, in the Old Testament, God was Father. During the time of Christ on earth, God was the Son. And then as Christ ascends, the Spirit descends. And so now in the church, God is the Holy Spirit. There are different names or modes for the one God, but they deny the Trinity. That, that would be, that, that, that's not a misunderstanding. That is an, an understanding of a wrong view held by so-called oneness Pentecostals. You know, we, we don't, definitely don't want to go in that direction. That's good. What um, there's a one specific text that comes to mind uh, along those this, those lines, and I wish you could clear it up for me. It's Second uh, Corinthians three, um, starting in verse seventeen. Paul says, "Now the spirit, the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty." Um, what what does that mean? The Lord is the spirit. What what is Paul emphasizing there? I mean, I, it's yeah. As I understand that, he's obviously talking about uh, Moses and the Mosaic covenant and the giving of the law. And, and Yahweh, the Lord, was God of that covenant, who now, in the new covenant, as Paul is also emphasizing this passage, uh, Yahweh, the Lord, um, is the Spirit who is the one who is transforming us into more fully into the image of Jesus Christ. So the Lord who is described and focused on in the old covenant, the Lord Yahweh, is now in this new covenant reality. The focus is on uh, the Holy Spirit as the Lord of the new covenant. He is the one who, on the day of Pentecost, sent by the Father and the, and, and the Son, descends and inaugurates the church, which is the new covenant, um, the new covenant community of the people of God. And we have the, we have business to do with the Spirit of God who transforms us into the image of Christ. That's great. Dr. Allison, I, I remember when I was a, a new believer, having grown up in a kind of oneness movement, I really struggled with the Trinity, and I, I've not figured it out. In fact, I've uh, my understanding has stepped to the side and given way to the paradox so that faith can come in, uh, to quote our friend Kierkegaard. Um, but I would read passages like John 6.46, that no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God, only he has seen the Father, speaking of the Son, and I'm wondering, where's the Spirit? Or the way that Paul starts most of his letters, you know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he launches from there, and I would always wonder, well, where's the Spirit? What do we do with uh, almost a highlighted binetarianism? Of course, we know in like Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, the Spirit is involved, but he, he's a background player, so to speak. How do we make sense of that and co-equal, co-eternal person? So let's just take the John 6. Um, Jesus engaged with 
uh, his religious critics making a point about specifically about faith in him um, for eternal life. He is the one who is sent by the Father. He's the one who's revealing the Father. He's come to do the Father's will. And so they have, so the focus there is on this uh, father-son relationship. Now, following progressive revelation, right, um, that the role of the Spirit in all of this becomes expressed more clearly throughout the Gospel of John. So we've got in John 8, we've got these uh, I, this idea of the Father communicating revelation to the Son, who does not speak on his own authority, but speaks only what he hears from the Father. And then the Son saying that in chapter 16 of John, that he will speak and the Holy Spirit uh, will listen will take the words that Christ speak, and the Spirit will not speak on his own authority, only what he hears, and he will communicate the word, uh, the, the, this divine revelation. So we've got uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit becoming more clear, progressively revealed, even as we see in the Gospel of John. Mm. And of course, in John 14 through 17, we have Jesus really highlighting the fact that he is leaving and in his place he is sending the other another comforter right. to take over what Jesus did on earth so even the gospel of john i think helps us understand there's a progressive revelation yep. moving from the father and the son relationship to the father son and now as the son removed is removed the, the relationship that we will enjoy with the holy spirit so what who is the holy spirit and why is he important the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune God, being fully God himself, equal to the Father and the Son in terms of his divine nature, yet while retaining his unique person. He is to be worshipped and glorified, just as we worship and glorify the Father and the Son. By the Holy Spirit's will, we received gifts of the Spirit to drive us toward our sanctification in Christ, day by day, minute by minute, every step of the way. He is there. He is both the inspirer and illuminator of the Word of God. He is our initial ability to even acknowledge and confess that Jesus is Lord and gives us assurance of salvation. Well, we hope you join us for our next episode as we complete our series on the Apostles' Creed. We hope that you have enjoyed it. We also hope that you are looking forward to our next series, The Gospel According to Heretics, where we will be examining various Christian heresies throughout church history.